have the show notes in front of me now. So I'm all ready. I'm all, everything's okay. Hooray. Nothing massively dramatic has happened uh, in the last hour. So that's great. Nothing in my house has spontaneously smashed or had paint all over it <laughs> or any one of the other numerous things that has happened over the last <laughs> week. Everything is stable. So, yeah. Remind me of what happened to your carpet, man. Do we really want this to be a bit? <laughs> yes. I mean... It's caused me such stress over the last couple of days. The series of events was basically a bird made its way into the roof of my house and I work in the attic. And so the bird then made its way into the attic. The bird was, first of all, ginormous. I don't understand the scale of birds indoors versus outdoors, but outdoors they look normal sized. Indoors, all birds look 50 feet large. <laughs> the bird then knocked some oil paints. I'd, I'd like to do a bit of oil painting every now and then. I had pre-mixed this beautiful blue, which then ended up not onto the floor, surprisingly, but then onto the cat. So the bird knocked the paint onto the cat in what I assume was a kind of a self-defense mode. <laughs> Shield itself. So we were trying to grab the cat and also put the bird outside the window. I was entirely useless during this. Birds are far too big and move far too fast for me to touch one or go near one indoors. I wouldn't say I have a bird phobia. I would say I have common sense and don't want my eyes scratched out. So the bird then, yeah, drops paint onto the cat. The cat trails the paint through the house and I spend the next, you know, hour applying white spirit to the carpets, which then leaves kind of like a nice egg shape where the mark around it is bleached, but the center is still solid blue. That plus lots of soap and water. I uh, regret all of the actions leading up to it, including open the door when the cat was in the room, I thought that was pretty stupid. And leaving paints out, that was pretty daft too. So, uh, yeah, all, all of the actions leading up to that was terrible. Your life really is just one big comedy sketch in a TV show, isn't it, Matt? Yeah, yeah. Oh, Benny Hill music was playing in the background while Matt was doing this. Like, <laughs> let's, let's be clear. In my head, it was, yeah. <laughs> it's just your life, though, Matt. <sighs> <laughs> I do love witnessing your life. Like the next day you posted a picture of one of the one of the windows in your house yeah. just shattering. Spontaneously combusted. Which when you ring up the the glass company to say this to them, you sound, you know, you're not gonna believe this, right? That's how I started it. You are absolutely not going to believe what happened. Nothing touched this, there was no sound, it just went. And they were like, Yeah, this happens all the time. I can fit you in for a quote around three other people that this has also happened to in your city. Well, I'm like, what? what? Why do people build things out of glass then? If it's that unreliable, <laughs> he was like, it happens in shower screens all the time. I'm like, this would be so much worse if I was naked standing there and glass was all around me. <laughs> yeah. So, oh man. I mean, these are. Pretty first world problems, aren't they? But it does make for entertaining podcast content. It, yes. I, I feel like uh, I have the, the stress of all the, you know, the activities in the world that are going on. And these feel like just, you know, some small cherries on top of that icing. But we've had lots of news in one pass we're going out recently, including the top bug bounty reward. We've switched to $1 million. 
I feel like I need to, you know, put my pinky finger next to my mouth to say that. <laughs> I feel like $1 million as well is a better reward than a lot of game shows. Yeah. yeah, a million. We just keep upping the top prize because people keep disappointing us and not actually capturing it. So we're just going we're, <laughs> we're gonna to make it more and more enticing to try and get more eyeballs on this to see if someone out there could actually capture the flag, as it were. I mean, it's a good thing, right? Like, for, so for those that don't know, like we have set ourselves up to pay people who attempt and succeed in hacking pieces of one password in sort of a controlled environment. And we do this to try and ensure that the security that we think that we have built up around one password is actually strong and good. And we've paid out a couple of small bounties. $103,000 uh, to be precise. It averages about $900 per reward, and all the detective bugs have been minor so far and didn't pose a threat to customer-sensitive data or anything. Yes. Oh, yeah, absolutely. No, these are, but these are all like just like little doors that we're closing in our system. It's great. Bug bounties are the best. Yeah, we, we've done more than a dozen external penetration tests now annually, which, of course, we always release to the public as well. So, yeah, you can go to support.1password.com forward slash security hyphen assessments to look at the external hosted ones or take a look at the blog and read more about our, our bug bounty. Nice. Yeah. Hey, do we get to talk about our big security launch on this episode? That's happening as we record, so I have to imagine that, yes, we can yes. talk about it. I mean, uh, we're to speaking to, to Tony this week, right? Yeah, we got a big launch for some a bunch of developer tools today. You can now use 1Password as your SSH agent, which I've been doing, and it's way better than SSH. We have some new CLI, a new CLI tool out today. It's really good. Like You should just go to our blog and look for the developer tools stuff. It's fantastic. But yeah, there's loads of changes. There's two blog posts out. Both went out at the same time. <laughs> so many features we've released with this. <laughs> yeah. uh, so I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm really excited. Oh, and do you know what else is awesome? This is just like, it's a bit nerdy, but I mean, it is the developer launch, so it's okay. We launched this on Linux and Windows and Mac all on the same day because this was all built on top of our new core-based 1Password desktop app. So like the promise of the core is, is being fulfilled, and I'm so happy about that. That is cool. Shall we... Jump into some Watchtower Weekly. Let's do it. I think we should. All right. This first one, Ubisoft says it experienced a cybersecurity incident. So this one's reported by The Verge. Ubisoft experienced a cybersecurity incident last week that temporarily disrupted some games. Ubisoft, who hasn't said who might be responsible, but the group who reportedly hacked NVIDIA took credit. Ubisoft says it believes at this time there is no evidence any player personal information was accessed or exposed as a byproduct of this incident, and that all games and services are now functioning normally. Out of caution, the company also initiated a company-wide password reset. So news of the incident arrives amid a, a recent wave of high-profile hacks. Uh, last episode, we covered NVIDIA, of course, with hackers leaking employee credentials and proprietary information. A few days later, Samsung said that the hackers stole internal company data and source code for Galaxy devices. The Lapsus... Again, I think we rated those fairly low last episode, that name. The Lapsus Hacking Group has taken responsibilities for those two breaches. But that may not be all. In a Telegram channel allegedly run by Lapsus, the group posted a link to this article by The Verge and the smirking face emoji at seemingly taking responsibility for the Ubisoft incident too. So in a response to a user in the channel, the group confirmed that it did not target Ubisoft's customer information. So, you know, they were aware what they were doing 
and they didn't target customer information. But yeah, I think that company-wide password reset is probably the best course of action from this. I believe this isn't the first time Ubisoft have been hacked, is it? I don't think it is, no. Mm, I, I think no, they, I don't think yeah. it is. Quite, quite a big target, aren't they, really? Sort of a bit like Groundhog Day, which kind of mimics their Assassin's Creed games, <laughs> mm. <laughs> which all feel the same. Or Far Cry games, which they all feel the same as well. Yeah. I'm playing Far Cry 6 at the moment, and uh, yeah, it's, it's pretty much like every other Far Cry game. Yeah. It's like once you've played one Assassin's Creed game, you've pretty much played them all, right? I never get to the end of them because all I end up doing is hiding in <laughs> hay barrels. So. Maybe they just need to switch things up in more, than, more ways than one, you know? Yep. Maybe a little bit more proactive than a uh, reactive company-wide password reset there. Yeah. So Gas Buddy is a privacy nightmare. And this one's reported by the New York Times. With the price of gallon of gas hit new highs, now $4.17 a gallon in the US, it's increasingly important to find the cheapest gas wherever you are. A common recommendation for this is Gas Buddy. So Wirecutter took a closer look at the app. And its privacy practices set off massive alarms. The GasBuddy app is meant to save you money on gas and it offers you a chance to earn points based on other purchases, like for more gas, basically. Like most savings programs, GasBuddy's program appears to slurp up plenty of data about you. According to its privacy policy, it collects and shares mountains of information, including your location. A 2017 lawsuit revealed that GasBuddy was selling location data for $9.50 per 1,000 users. GasBuddy may then share your location with Cubic and Foursquare, two of the larger location data brokers in the industry. I, I actually didn't realize that, that Foursquare bought wholesale data like that. Hmm. I, I thought they were purely kind of consumer-based, but I'm obviously naive about that. <laughs> You're an optimist, man. Yes, yeah. So GasBuddy also has this optional feature called Drive, which collects and shares information about your driving habits. It shares that with Arity. If you turn the Drive feature on, GasBuddy may share the information it collects about your driving habits with insurance companies in order to produce a score which may predict the level of driver riskiness. There's a lot of things out there like that at the moment. You know, you can run for a specific portion of time in order to get a bit of money off your insurance. It does things like how hard you brake and, and that type of thing. I kind of don't mind it if it's a, a standalone app that I run once when I'm looking to renew my insurance or something like that, and it only takes money off. But I don't feel great about that in addition to the location stuff right that's a bit yeah no certainly not so gas buddy does offer you the option to opt out of sharing your location if you use an iphone you can disable the tracking by opening the settings app and tapping privacy then tracking you can use the app also without an account and without approving the location permissions by typing in a zip code or, or, or something into the search instead of letting the app pinpoint you automatically there are also alternatives to search gas prices like Google Maps or Waze, Geico's Gas Search Buddy and Gas Buddy's browser-based search. Although Gas Buddy's mobile apps aren't up to our privacy standards, the browser-based version is, is apparently better. I think we're going to see a whole bunch of more users using this platform. Yeah, I've certainly I've certainly done it before. Just pulled up the app and and like looked around the area that I'm at to see where the cheapest gas is and then I go there and then that's it. I guess you have to weigh up how much it's worth that tiny extra saving using Gas Buddy 
versus giving up as much of your personal information. If you've got a you know much bigger car than my, my little smart car, I'm, I'm sure it makes a, a much bigger difference. Yep. <laughs> so APT41 spies broke into six US state networks via a livestock app. This is from ThreatPost. And so the China-affiliated state sponsor Threat Actor, uh, that's APT41. Um, again, I'm not even going to rate that because it's so low. It's set. <laughs> I, I read that and it reminds me of either Sum 41 or Alien Ant Farm. And I can't, <gasps> like a com- combination of both. It's, it's, the, it's the busted, what's the? McFly. It, yeah, it's the busted McFly combination of McBusted, but with some 41 and alien out <laughs> that gives you a small insight into where my brain goes how your brain works that's quite impressive yeah so the threat actor used log 4j and zero day bugs in the u.s herds animal tracking software to hack into multiple government networks so usa herds is an app used by farmers to speed up their response to diseases and other threats to their livestock but it has become an infection vector itself used to pry open at least six U.S. state networks by one of China's most prolific state-sponsored espionage groups. So in a report recently published by Mandiant, the researchers described a prolonged incursion conducted by APT41. They detected the activity in May 2021 and tracked it through to February 2022. Observing the spy group, pry open vulnerable internet-facing web apps that were often written in ASP.net. Okay, so APT41, which is also known as, are you ready for these? Winty, Barium, Wicked Panda, or Wicked Spider. Why didn't they go for Wicked Panda? That's far better than APT41. Uh, I mean, yeah. APT stands for Advanced Persistent Threat. So they're known for nation-state-backed cyber espionage and supply chain hits, and mostly, you know, profit-driven cybercrime. So their goals are really unknown, but researchers say that they've observed evidence of the attackers exfiltrating personally identifiable information. Mandiant, the researchers, their investigations have also shown a slew of new techniques, malware variants, evasion methods, and capabilities. So to hack into the state's networks, the threat actor used a zero-day vulnerability in USA herds. So the Animal Health Emergency Reporting Diagnostic System, I can see why they came up with a a catchy name. Mandiant reported that in the most recent campaigns, the actor also leveraged the now infamous zero-day vulnerability in Log4j. The USA herd zero-day floor had to do with its app's use of hard-coded credentials to achieve the remote code execution on the system that runs it. The app is used in 18 states for health management. The scope and sophistication of these crimes in these unsealed indictments is unprecedented. The alleged criminal scheme used actors in China and Malaysia to illegally hack intrude and steal information from victims worldwide. And that comes from Michael Sherwin, the acting US attorney for the District of Columbia. So, I mean, this is using multiple vulnerabilities in in multiple systems in order to break through into the supply chains and really kind of damaging applications and, and services. These are business utilities that keep supply chains up. I feel like we've seen a growing number of these over the last, you know, year or so, I think we need to invest a lot more in our cybersecurity for supply chains. You know, with the world events that are currently happening, I can only see this 
stepping up. This seems to me like one of those areas that we do need to invest in in order to make it better or more resilient because it can really jeopardize things. It can grind society to a bit of a halt. A depressing one to end on. Yeah, depressing. <laughs> so this week, I had the, the great pleasure of chatting with Tony Myers. Tony is our VP of product management here, and we talked all about today's developer launch. And it was really cool. And I got to nerd out on some of the new stuff that we built and do it in public. So we'll just drop that in here. Dropping by for this week at 1Password is VP of Product Management, Tony Myers. Tony is here today to discuss 1Password's new developer tools, including the SSH capability, CLI version 2.0, and the new developer documentation portal, and what these will mean for our developers. Thanks for joining me today, Tony. How are you? I am doing fantastic. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. I'm glad you're here. This is a subject that I'm going to suitably nerd out about, so I think this is going to be, <laughs> this will be a good chat. Now, just yeah. to clarify, when I said what this will mean for our developers, what I mean is not like the people who work at 1Password, but rather the people who don't work at 1Password who are developing with and for our apps. Yep. So we already have some developer-specific tools, but can you give us a quick overview of sort of like what we're talking about and what's new and what people should start getting excited about? Yeah, absolutely. And just to, to start as well... This is kind of our first developer-focused release that we've had. And uh, I think, as you said as well, we've released some things that developers really use a lot of, like API credentials and storing secrets within 1Password, which is phenomenal. Getting those out of the environment and putting it in a place that's very secure is kind of step number one. But we really wanted to be able to help developers be more productive, especially when they're using secrets within the daily tasks. So it's really kind of key areas, uh, three key areas, and I think you've touched on them as well. The first is a better way just to create, use, and manage SSH or secure shell keys. The second is we've done a bunch of stuff around enhancing our CLI or command line interface to be much more easy to use. And we've added a bunch of additional commands that I'm sure we're going to get into. One of the really cool ones is the ability to go and unlock you know, some of the features like the Touch ID. It's something that's really, really neat. And we again, we can get into that. And the third area is around this documentation portal. And this is really crucial when it comes to developers, because a lot of times developers just want to do things self-service. They want the documentation. They want to go and find out what they want to do or what they can do. And then they go and create. They go and do some really innovative stuff. So those are really the three big areas that we're going to be delivering here. Yeah. I'm going to start with that last one because I think that we really struck the right tone. If I'm trying to use a new tool, and I have to register with the website or I have to send an email to like get information about how I download it. I, I leave. I'm just I'm like, that's it. Yeah. <laughs> Friction. Yeah. The fact that we're just like, OK, like here's the docs. Go. Here's the downloads. Like, go do it. Like, this is how yeah. you get started on your own. It's such a nice a nice touch. Yeah, it's great. And it's just going to grow over time as well. I mean, this is, again, the first time that we've really put our developer hat on from a user standpoint and, and focused on it. We're going to continue to build examples and content and put out architectural type of concepts associated with it. And that portal is going to grow as we get more and more feedback. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so let's start with the one that I have been using now for the last few weeks, which is our SSH integration. First of all, you got to tell people who are not developers what SSH is. Uh, we need to like explain it like I'm five version, yep. and then we can just go in on it. Yeah, that's that's cool. So SSH is essentially used to set up a secure connection <laughs> between my computer and another computer or service. That's it's as simple as that, and it really consists of two keys. You know, one's a private, one's a public key. 
the public key is configured on the destination and the private one is the one I, I use on my computer. And the combination of those two keys gives me access to those resources. So a couple of examples just to kind of dive a little bit deeper into, you know, as a developer, I need to run my application on another machine. Let's say I go to AWS and I create a virtual machine or I go to DigitalOcean and create a virtual machine. I need to put my application on that machine. I need to access it to debug it or configure it. Well, you use SSH in order to connect over to that machine. Another great example and one that we're really focusing on is when a developer needs to access a source code hosting platform like GitHub. It's really, really common from a developer standpoint. They use it many, many times a day. And the developer will set up SSH so they can go and use those GitHub commands right from their local text-based terminal on their machine. So some pretty you know, basic examples of SSH, but it's used all over the place, quite frankly, used really, really, not just from a developer standpoint, but also from a technical user standpoint as well. Yep. Nailed it. That is exactly right. Uh, so today I'm a developer out in the world. I have my .ssh directory in my home directory. It's where my public and private keys live. It in it, I've got my SSH configured to use that from the terminal. These files are currently password protected. Why should I be using one password for this stuff instead? Yeah. Like it, it, it works today. Yeah. Like what's the big deal? That's one. And two, like how, yeah. how do I get started? It's kind of funny because there's quite a few problems with how SSH is managed today. And a lot of people have just kind of accepted <laughs> those problems as part of their everyday work. Developers don't really set up keys every day. So, I mean, one problem they have is if they have to set up a new key, they have to go and figure out what to do and Google it. And then the process itself is really manual and error prone. You could go and take a key and cut and paste a key and you could forget some characters. You can go and cut and paste your private key versus your public key. So even though there's a series, it's not a huge process and a lot of developers do it, it really is kind of way too manual and way too error prone. So the other thing it, that, like you mentioned, is the keys are stored locally on the disk. So it's not the best security when doing things like switching between machines that can become a hassle or even, you know, if somebody gets access to your machine as well. So the best thing that we could recommend <laughs> is putting all of your secrets within one password. Finally, good practice includes things like passphrases, like you're you mentioning around SSH keys. That can be really cumbersome. You can forget your passphrases. You can start going and propagating all your SSH keys and start losing what you're using for what, for where. So it becomes really a management issue associated with it as well. And we really wanted to tackle this problem by first allowing the user to easily import or create and store those SSH keys within one password with the rest of the secrets that you use, right? And this gets it off the local disk and with all of your other secrets. We're also introducing through a uh, SSH agent and that agent, you can actually use that in order to unlock SSH using things like Touch ID. So now when you're using SSH, it's just a matter of very, very quickly going and using Touch ID. You get authorized, and you get access to those resources that you want. So it's funny because when we went to go and talk with developers, a lot of the response back was, yeah, SSH, I mean, it's a hassle, but I, I do it and, you know, no big deal. And then we showed them what we were doing around SSH and they said, oh my God, I need to have this. <laughs> this is phenomenal. <laughs> so it really shows the fact that, you know, developers are looking at these really complicated processes and they just accept it. But, you know, we really want to go and unpack that and make those processes easier as well as very, very transparent from a consumption standpoint. Yeah. So it occurs to me as you were talking that we may have buried the lead just a skosh because we didn't just like add an SSH key item type to one password, but one password eight for desktop 
is now a full-on SSH agent. Like it allows you to use the keys stored within one password in your terminal. And so I'll, I'm going to give my experience with this early on because there were some things that I learned as I was doing this that I didn't know before, which was fun. So first of all, and this is this is embarrassing to admit because of my position within a prominent password management company, I had lost my SSH key passcode. Oh, <laughs> so very common. Very common. Don't be embarrassed. <laughs> when I did, when I went to go import my existing keys into one password, I could not find the passphrase for a couple of my keys. And I was going out of my head because I was like, this is, it's obviously in one password. Like, why isn't this working? So that was the first thing. Two, I had keys that I had generated a decade ago. And what I didn't realize is that key types and key formats and standards have evolved and that these keys I was using every day for communicating securely with services were not the modern recommended key formats. And then the other thing I was doing that wasn't great was I was reusing the same keys for every service because it was just convenient. God, again, embarrassing to admit. We've gotten so much of that feedback though from beta as we were going through the beta process and developers were saying the exact same thing. It's just, yeah. you know, SSH is something where you, it's kind of like set it and forget it, but you don't forget it because you get all of this technical debt <laughs> yep. building up over time. You forget things. We wanted to move the passphrases off of sticky notes on your computer someplace or tucked in your desk into one password. And if you use that SSH agent, you don't have to worry about passphrases. No. You don't have to remember anything we take care of all of that no there's no there's no more passphrases for my keys i like that was another light bulb moment where i was like oh my god like wait yeah. this is just of course in retrospect it's like oh of course it's it's encrypted securely into one password i don't need a passphrase for it that sort of light bulb moment was was pretty huge awesome so i ended up generating new keys so we use gitlab for our code hosting i ended up generating a new key for our gitlab instance and putting the public key up on my gitlab settings but i also have a github account that GitHub account has its own separate SSH key now. And then I configured the agent and I went over to the terminal and I, I sort of switched around my SSH config stuff to use the one password uh, SSH agent. And the first time that I like tried to do a Git pull and I got a touch ID prompt up on my screen that said, hey, terminal is trying to use a key from one password. I was like, oh, my God, like this is incredible. Like and I just <laughs> put my finger on the touch ID sensor or I, I may have even done it with my watch because we have Apple Watch on lock. Apple Watch, right? That just worked. But more so, I used Tower as my UI for Git. I opened up Tower and immediately got a prompt that said, hey, Tower is trying to pull from GitLab. Do you want to allow this in one password? And I touch ID I, I approved it and it just worked like very tentatively. You approved it. <laughs> it was so good. Like and it just it continues. It's been so rock solid. It just continues to work. I, I've been such a nerd about this. Like It's, <laughs> it's going to blow people's minds when they get their hands on it. It's going to be great. It's a game changer. Yeah. It really is because people have accepted the way it was. And, and we've really taken a lot of complexity and friction out of the process, which I love. The, the one aha moment that I had, Rue, was when, you know, I tried it with this was early on and I was trying it with DigitalOcean and GitLab and GitHub and, and some other services. And I would be able to go right to where I was configuring the SSH key and I could just generate the SSH key right from there. It's just a, a fill that you can generate right there. And then you go into one password, it takes care of everything. It generates the public, it generates the private. You don't have to worry about anything. And it's it's just a seamless, seamless process. And hopefully developers don't have to worry about SSH going forward. They just have to worry about developing and getting access to the resources they need. Yeah. That's the big thing. A hundred percent. Yeah, I had forgotten uh, because I, I was testing this before the browser extension, their piece was done. But you're right. You can now generate your keys using our browser extension 
on the web page where you're setting up your keys. Like you don't have to copy and paste anything. It's yeah, I, I measured, <laughs> I measured the number of steps, and I believe it was about ten to twelve steps across multiple technologies and terminals and cut and paste and everything else. And it literally was one step. Just right click generate you're good to go it's so good it's amazing i could talk about ssh for an entire podcast episode but anna would probably be frustrated with the amount of content she has to edit so let's talk about cli version two. First of all what is a cli and what is our cli go from there yeah you know what cli is is something that developers administrators they use it a lot it's essentially a text-based interface that you can use in order to issue commands so a lot of people won't go into the ui they won't go into the web page they'll want to do something in the context of a terminal and be able to go very fast i mean the advantages of using a cli is number one is you can get to exactly where you want to go very fast you know a couple of keystrokes the second thing is that you can go and automate things. You can write scripts around CLIs in order to go and automate workflows so that you can go and save time and be more productive from that standpoint. So in the CLI, like I said, it's used from a developer standpoint, but it's also used from an admin standpoint, from a technical user standpoint. It's really kind of important to stay in flow. <laughs> and I'm going to like introduce maybe that, maybe we can talk a little bit about this concept of flow because it's been one of the key themes when it comes to the developer release is making sure the developer is more productive. And keeping them in flow really means deep work and keeping them engaged from a deep work standpoint. You can think of it this way, especially when it comes to developing in code, you have to stay in context of what you're doing. And as soon as you lose that context, it's not just one minute in order to authorize something or do something outside of that. It's you lose the flow that you're in and distractions can cause all this friction. And it might take a half hour to get back in. You know, when I'm in a really deep thoughts and somebody comes and interrupts me, I'll be like, okay, you know, that's done. I'm going to go and get a sandwich. <laughs> and then I come back and yeah. you start trying to get into that deep work. So the reason why I'm bringing that up is because Touch ID has been implemented as well from a CLI. And these little areas where there's a little bit of friction, we really focused on that as well. So SSH has Touch ID, CLI has Touch ID. And that was one of the really important things, how we wanted to keep developers in flow by doing these little things like uh, Touch ID with the CLI. There's other things as well that we've added to the CLIs, other commands that we've added to the CLI. Great example of a command is this run command that's being used all over the place. Like the CLI is, is such a powerful tool where people can go and create these new innovative ways of solving these workflows. Flows, but one of these commands that I just wanted to highlight is this run command. And what you can do with this run command is you can go and run an application and expose the secrets in one password in for that application so that you can use it in context of that application. So I'll give you a really quick example of this. As a developer, I might want to go and use the AWS CLI. And I'm going to go and download that and I'm going to start using that. Well, you can now use the 1Password CLI in conjunction with AWS CLI so that when you run that AWS CLI, you just have to use Touch ID and you're authorized to go and access AWS. So it saves, instead of going into 1Password, copying and pasting, what are the credentials? I need to go and log in here. You can just now optimize that process by using AWS. Another great example of using the run command is in the context of applications. So as a developer, I'm writing an application. Let's say I'm writing an application to use a Stripe API. Well, you can go and wrapper that application with a run command in order to pull that Stripe API out of one password, just use a reference within your application so that it's much, much more secure and be able to go and run the application in context while securing your credentials. So it's really powerful, a lot of the things around the CLI that we've implemented. The last area around the CLI is just a whole bunch of work around changing the syntax of the CLI 
to be a little bit more in line with the standards. So we're really calling this 2.0 because it is 2.0. There's a lot of changes in the CLI and there's a lot of different creative ways that the developers are going to start using the CLI to create new innovative workflows. So we've talked internally at 1Password about this idea of acceptable complexity in developer tools. Developers are willing to accept a little bit more complexity in their tools than non-developers in order to maintain some transparency. How has that idea influenced how we built how we built these things? There's kind of two two ends of the spectrum here. There's one where there's complexity in processes that are a pain in the butt. <laughs> and there's complexity because the function of a developer is just a complex process. A lot of times it's you're using the Lego blocks to build things and wire things together and it's very complex. And on the one side, the accepted complexity on something like SSH is a great example of something that they shouldn't accept complexity. We should go and raise the bar on that and we should go and solve those complexity problems so they can do other things. The accepted complexity when it comes to things like the power of using CLIs or APIs or SDKs that we go and put in place, that should be something that we go and empower them to use these things in Lego blocks so that they can go and assemble them and create even more innovative things and better solutions around this. So there is this balance and really looking at reducing the friction in the areas that don't matter and increasing the capabilities that matter in the areas that do matter. And I think that's really where the developer documentation comes in as well and plays a really key role. It's you know, providing all of the context that the developer needs in order to use that complexity as fast as possible, as complete as possible, giving them examples in order to go and do it, putting concepts in place so that they can go and leverage those concepts so they can create even more powerful workflows and, and applications. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so I don't want to give away too much because this we've already talked about like yep. some huge stuff, but like this isn't the end. This is clearly not the end. This is just the beginning. <laughs> yeah. What can you share without oversharing about the future of developer tools? We're on a, uh, a journey here and this is the first step. I mean, quite frankly, there's a ton of other areas that we think we can go and simplify in order to go and reduce friction and increase developer productivity, as well as simplify the use of secrets throughout the SDLC. That's what it comes to the software development lifecycle. And those are the two areas that we're really focusing on quite a bit is, you know, looking for these use cases, these problems that developers have where they just want it to go away and they just want one password to take care of that when it comes to using secrets. The other area that we're really focusing on, and you'll see this with how we've embedded SSH into the tools that developers use, we don't want developers to swivel chair into one password and start leveraging things from a one password standpoint. We want to embed these things into the tools that developers use. And that's very apparent when it comes to you know exposing secrets, when it comes to IDEs, as an example, that developers might use or going into GitHub and being able to go and use use the secrets directly from a GitHub standpoint or any type of terminal tools that they might have. So there's going to be us creating our solutions is going to be very much being pushed into the developer tools and the context that they already have. We don't want them to learn more things. We just want to go and provide secrets in a very secure fashion in the tools that they have so they can be more productive and more secure. There's a third leg to the stool that we haven't touched on yet today, but I'll, I'll mention it briefly, which is is our secrets automation integration. And this is a server side integration that people can opt into and connect 1Password into their infrastructure. So you can script, you can actually script and, and integrate 1Password in at the infrastructure level. So if you have servers running services, they can pull their secrets straight out of 1Password. We've got integrations right now for GitHub Actions. So you can actually have actions that run on GitHub that pull secrets out of your 1Password vaults 
and use them in a secure manner without copying and pasting or having to expose these these secrets otherwise. Like it's yep. the secrets integration, the secrets automation stuff is another thing that I just think is so fantastic. Another one I could spend a whole podcast talking about again. <laughs> and there's a huge tie between what we talked about and, and secrets automation. So secrets automation was purpose designed to have APIs and SDKs that developers consume. It was purpose designed to have references to secrets that get translated at, at runtime from an application standpoint. And if you think about what we've done from a CLI standpoint with the inject and run commands, that's kind of a very basic secrets automation where we're going and taking the secrets out of the infrastructure and putting it into one password, the customer can reference those secrets as they're using those applications. And it's very easy to go from a CLI implementation to a secrets automation implementation as well. So there's this concept of maturing an organization, very, very low friction, easy to consume, CLI, run command, you can put it in place, you can get your secrets within your infrastructure more secure because they're all within one password now. And then as you grow as an organization, as you scale, you need to scale as an organization, then secrets automation is there and can very easily take that to the next level with essentially just a flip of an environment variable. So we've really thought about the relationship between what we're delivering from a CLI standpoint and where secrets automation is going as well. All right. By the time people hear this, we may have already launched some of this. Yes. Where should people be looking to get their hands on some of the stuff that we've talked about today? Yeah, it's great. Great question. So there's probably two areas here. There's onepassword.com slash developer, which is a landing page. It can give you a great overview of what's in the release. And then the other one, which is quite frankly, very similar is developer.onepassword.com, which is the docs portal associated with it. And if you're, if you just want to get to the meat of what it looks like and the details associated with it, you can jump right into the docs portal. If you're looking for a little bit more of a high level overview, then onepassword.com com slash developer is the right spot for you. Very cool. Well, Tony, thank you so much for, for uh, coming on today and giving me a chance to nerd out about some stuff in public. <laughs> <laughs> it was my pleasure. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> Had a lot of fun. Awesome. All right. Take care. So let's move on to ask one password. And we have an email this week from Ryan who says, Long-time listener, first-time emailer. Points already, to be honest. That's my favourite introdu introduction that anybody could make. Long-time listener, first-time emailer. Yes. And he also said that he loves you, Matt. No, he said, I love Matt's note in last week's episode that he randomly generates usernames for some services. It's something I've been doing for years, especially for sensitive accounts like banking. Another practice or tip I've thought about sharing for a while is using tags to help organise what information I've shared with a particular service. This has come in handy when I moved last year and needed to update my mailing address. I already had a great inventory of where I needed to do that, or when a credit card expires I can check which sites need to be updated. And in a worst case scenario, if that site gets breached I know at a glance what kind of info might have been exposed. I might have gone overboard, but so far I keep track of these things. Phone numbers, addresses, credit cards, bank accounts, social security number, birth date, photos, i.e. headshots, profile photos and medical info. So yeah, that's a, a pretty neat tip from Ryan there. I mean, yeah, this is this is impressive. I like this. I like putting all this information in one password to kind of then make sure that when you feed it out to other things, that... It's the right information. It's And it's the, we can fill it some of the time and have a base for it. When I look at previous addresses, I can remember like some of them, but I've, I've moved a fair amount of times. So like the previous addresses that I have in 1Password are really useful. The thing that I, 
I think we need to make one password more useful for is these types of information. At the moment, I have all of this and I have all of the information shared with me. And I think we need to get a bit better at context, right? I have a phone number and an address and a bank account and all of that. But I also have like work variants of all of those things too. So yeah, we're, we're definitely working on, you know, ways and means that we can make uh, 1Password way more interesting. And uh, if you have ideas about that type of stuff, I mean, you're already listening to the uh, 1Password podcast. You are probably quite an adept user of 1Password. If you're using it in a way that's like, oh, I'm pretty happy with this, you know, you're pretty smug about how you've organized tags or something like that, email in because uh, especially my design team are all the time trying to reach out to customers to talk to them about how they use 1Password and things that we might bring to the wider user base of 1Password. So, you know, coming in and, and saying like, look, you're not going to believe the way that I use 1Password and it works for me. Um, <laughs> I love hearing those stories, uh, first of all. Mm. And and second of all, this is how features start. Like people start using it. You know, we, we wanted an archive feature because loads of us just had archive vaults hanging all over the place and uh, we built it. And And that's exactly how these things grow. Definitely. And if you also want to get in touch with the show, you can do so using the Ask One Password hashtag on Twitter, or you can send us an email at podcast at onepassword.com. Shall we play some ridiculous requirements? Yes. Let's do it. Oh, this, yeah, let's go. I love this. So, welcome to Ridiculous Requirements, the game where we work together to come up with passwords not advised that fit the honestly terrible requirements. And this week, the requirements are it must contain at least three Disney villains. One villain must not be human. Two passwords must end in LA. It must contain two villains with white hair. And finally, it must end with a number associated with one villain in particular. I'm going to be awful at this. I just want to say in advance, uh, the only <laughs> one that I know with white hair is the one from The Little Mermaid, because my Disney knowledge extends to about 1997 and no further. Um, so I'm going to say Ursula. You are correct. That is one. Yeah. Okay. So we got Ursula. Two passwords must end in L... L-A. Wait. Yeah. So Ursula. I see. Okay. I got you. Okay. 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 Ends, in, ends in L-A. But we need another one. One villain must not be human. So we could go Hades. Uh, uh, oh, yeah. Scar is a pretty one. Yeah, that, that's a pretty good one. What was that? Lion King? Yeah, Lion King. Scar. Yeah, Scar is one of them. Oh, Jeremy Irons. Excellent. Jeremy Irons is a voiceover. It, oh. He has a great baddie song as well. Be prepared. Be prepared. Yeah, that's a good one. I understand what I just did as well. Which is go from last episode hating all the musicals to uh, <laughs> liking the Lion King song. Nobody on this earth can dislike the Lion King, right? That's just... I think that is a requirement, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so we've got Hades, Scar and Ursula. I think it's Scar, Ursula, because Hades doesn't end in LA. So let's, let's go with those two. We need another LA. And we need a Disney villain ending in... Oh, oh, uh, Cruella. It is Cruella. Ah, very good. Doesn't technically have white hair. Has black and white hair. But yeah, there we go. Yeah, but she has some white hair. Right, okay. So uh, finally, it must end with a number associated with... Oh, 100. (laughs) 
You're missing a, a number there. <laughs> what? No, she had 100 dogs, didn't she? It's not 100 Dalmatians. Oh, it's 101 Dalmatians. <laughs> uh, 101? It is 101. 101? You, know, you know that popular film yep. with dogs in it? 100, 100 Dalmatians. 100, 100 uh, Dalmatians, yeah. <laughs> it's the prequel. It's fine. <laughs> the prequel. All of 100 Dalmatians is just Perdita in labor for the entire movie trying to squeeze out that last puppy. It's a birthing tape. Yeah. <laughs> Gross. All right, so Scar Ursula Cruella 101. It is. You got it. That sounds like a weird course. Mm-hmm. A 101. Yep. yep. All right, that's a great, terrible game of requirements. I think uh, I'm starting to see some of these when I generate passwords now. I, I just, I see the requirements and I'm like, could add three Disney villains in there. I think this game <laughs> is skewing my view of the internet now, which is good. Well, this is wonderful. All right. I think that is all we have time for. Perfect. Love you both. Love you both. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.